Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, everyone. I'm Sue Fletcher Watson from the University of Edinburgh, and we are recording another psychological, this time with Jenny Murphy from Royal Holloway University of London. And I'm really excited to talk to Jenny today. I approached her because I saw that she'd been doing some work on interoception, which is something I'm really fascinated by and I think is probably fairly understudied. And I thought it might be interesting for some of you to hear about as well. So welcome, Jenny. How are you today? Good, thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. You are very welcome. So, um, yeah, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what you've been discovering about uh, interoception in this piece of research? Sure. Uh, so really the key finding in this study was that self-reported interceptive accuracy and self-reported interceptive attention don't show a linear relationship with each other. So the amount of attention you pay to your body or that you think you pay to your body doesn't seem to map onto how good you think you are at accurately perceiving these signals from your body. So really that was the key finding from here. Okay, so, so I could be spending a lot of time thinking about my kind of physical states, if you like, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean I'm actually very good at working out what those physical states are. Exactly. So we don't know how this relates in terms of um, objective tasks. Um, so in this study, we we're focusing on self-report measures, but it seems to be that the amount of attention you think you're paying to your body doesn't necessarily map onto how accurate you think you are. And that kind of makes sense if you think about situations we might find ourselves in. So you might feel like um, you're always uh, paying attention to whether you need to go to the toilet, but find that when you go to the toilet, you don't need to. Um, in the same way that we might invite someone into the lab to do a study and they're very good at perceiving their internal signals, but in their everyday life, they don't pay attention to them at all. So it's not necessarily surprising that we don't find the relationship between the two, but this hasn't necessarily been I think, appreciated in the literature before. Mm. So before we go any further, I think probably we should backtrack a little bit and just define what we mean by interoception, mm. um, because it's maybe not a familiar term to some people. Sure. Well, defining interoception is somewhat easier said than done. <laughs> but most people, I think, would agree that when we, we're talking about interoception, we're referring to how you perceive or evaluate the internal state of your body. So things like your heart beating, your breathing, or when you need to go to the toilet. Um, where researchers disagree is exactly what would uh, be an internal signal. So the boundaries between internal and external can be a little bit fuzzy. Um, but for most signals, things like your heartbeat, breathing, gastric signals, I think most people would agree that these would be um, interoceptive. And, and what about the um, interpretation of those signals, right? So it's one thing for me to attend to my heart rate, for example, and then it's a different thing for me to work out if I'm feeling anxious or not, right? Mm. I might use my heart rate if I think it's racing really fast, I might use that to inform my self-perception of anxiety. But, 
but they are still two separate things. So is, is there a boundary there where interoception stops and sort of, I don't know, emotion starts or, or is it? It's a great question. I don't actually think that anyone has uh, pretty much narrowed, narrowed this down, <laughs> to be honest. I think if we think back to the sort of very old studies, um, so for example, where we see that it's not just the internal signal that uh, results in the emotion, that it's also the sort of cognitive evaluation of the signal as well as signals for our, from our environment that feed into sort of how we interpret a signal. Um, we would say that although the internal signals are important for our experience of emotions, then they're, they're not everything. So it's sort of potentially a sort of multiple stage process where we might have our heart racing fast, um, but then we might in certain situations say that we feel excited. Um, for example, if we're watching a football game and our team is just about to win, Whereas in another situation, if our heart is beating and we're about to give a class presentation or something like that, we might say that we feel nervous or anxious. Mm, mm. Um, okay, so, so given these um, challenges defining interoception, then I think obviously the next question is how you measured it. So you've talked mm. that it's self-report measures, but I wonder mm -hmm. if you could describe in a bit more detail what those measures look like and and also who who you were doing this study with who your participants were sure so in terms of our participants for this study uh we well there was multiple studies in this paper but for most of them we used opportunity samples so this is anyone who responds to the study invite is invited to take part um in terms of the uh, first question regarding the questionnaires. So for this study, we actually developed a new questionnaire of self-reported interoceptive accuracy. And this is because although there is one um, that is available, we there aren't actually many questionnaires that fully separate sort of attention and accuracy. So most questionnaire measures of interoception seem to be sort of an amalgamation of of different aspects of interoception and sort of evaluation of internal signals. So we had in the end throughout most of the studies three questionnaires. So one that was asking participants how aware they are of internal signals during most situations. So this would be how much attention they're paying to these signals. Mm -hmm. And then another two questionnaires, one that we developed that was simply asking, you know, I whether you agree with statements like, I can always accurately perceive when my heart is beating fast. And another questionnaire, which um, was developed by Rebecca Brewer, and this questionnaire um, has specific examples. So it would be things like, when I turn the heat up in the car, other people feel uncomfortable. And so although this would be a measure of accuracy, the tricky thing with this kind of questionnaire is it's specific situations and so people might not agree with that situation but might still have difficulties perceiving when they're hot and cold for example so those were the three measures that we used in this study hmm. um and what kind of analysis did you do with this so you said it was a non-linear relationship so mm -hmm. was it sort of more than just looking at correlations it sounds like they could have been something Yes. Uh, no, no. So mostly it was just looking at correlations. I guess the most uh, 
complicated aspects of the study, um, although not too complicated, was the factor analysis. Um, so because we developed this new questionnaire, we evaluated it uh, to some extent. And so what a factor analysis basically is, is looking at whether all of the questions on the questionnaire have a sort of similar response pattern mm. um, and other aspects that we looked at as well after we'd collected that data we had a sort of secondary set where we looked to confirm this pattern and see if we find the pattern that we found in the first set of data and the second set of data um, but unfortunately the factor structure of this questionnaire is not perfect and so we're still collecting more data but we're looking at it now finally got a big sample collected to have another look and see what's going on in terms of the factor structure. Mm. So when you say not perfect what were you hoping for did you want it all on to load onto one big factor or were you expecting some sort of subdomains of mm. different kinds? So I guess that we were sort of expecting that either we would find uh, one factor solution or if we did find multiple factors that they would be interpretable. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that what we what we did find is that signals that were potentially not very socially acceptable, so certain gastric signals um, tended to load onto one factor but, um, and also sort of items that seem to be sort of uh, where your internal state is maybe disrupted in some way. So for example, if you need to burp, um, but the, it wasn't a clean differentiation. So it didn't seem that these followed particular neural pathways. It didn't seem that there was a very clear grouping of why we had this two factor solution. So we focused on, um, the total scores for our analysis but I'm hoping that with this larger data set we'll be able to get a, a better idea of what's going on in terms of the actual structure and grouping of beliefs regarding your accuracy of perceiving different signals. I can well imagine though I mean if you're asking people questions about how um how alert they are to some of those internal states then you're going to get a lot of response bias from people who you know are, are well brought up and don't want to <laughs> um confess to their to their uh knowledge of their internal states yeah i imagine there is an element of that for sure i think partly having these sort of responses anonymous helps <laughs> but <Sure. laughs> But yeah, I think that there, there certainly might be individual differences in that um, and potentially even cross-cultural differences as well. Um, so we've collected some recent data looking at that, though I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. So it'd be interesting to see whether the factor structure holds across different groups. Mm, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we do have an issue, don't we, more broadly in psychology with the sort of lack of diversity in our samples. So I think that's very valuable. Mm. Um, so what do you think then we can learn from this? You mentioned, um, you know, this is one study of a group of studies. So, so mm. feel free to kind of think more broadly about um, the lessons from this research. I suppose I'm particularly interested in what it might have to tell us about um, children and child development and so on, mm. you know, kind of broader literature. Sure. So I guess in terms of the sort of, potential separation between 
accuracy and attention in, in with regards to interception is that thinking about these separately might be useful for understanding how interception might relate to mental health so certain conditions like anxiety for example might be related to more attention to internal signals but not necessarily greater accuracy and in the same way as we kind of mentioned earlier one's emotional abilities might relate to your interceptive accuracy but not necessarily your interceptive attention and so i think if we can find distinct patterning across uh, different uh, conditions we might actually be able to resolve some of the mixed findings that there are in the field and also in the in the future this is potentially a way towards uh, personalized and more effective interventions if we want to adjust different aspects of interception so if if a difficulty is due to too much attention that might be related to sort of a very different intervention or benefit from a very different intervention to someone who has difficulties perceiving these internal signals, if you see what I mean. The causality of it is quite interesting as well, isn't it? Because I can well imagine that if my, if I didn't feel I was very accurate in interpreting my internal states, I might start to become very attentive to mm. them in a sort of desperate quest for more knowledge and understanding you know yeah yeah definitely and this is kind of why i think it's interesting to start um hopefully now we've got sort of uh, a bigger data set coming in at the moment that we'll be able to look at sort of as i say possibilities of non-linear relationships between the two that we kind of might expect in in some respects and also um potentially also look at this sort of patterning across different groups so we might find that attention and accuracy relates differently um, in in different populations mm. so interesting um well we could go on forever it's <laughs> always the case but um let me ask before we finish then something about um, the advice that you might have for early career researchers or students who are listening because i know that you are relatively fresh from your PhD yourself. And so you've got some very up-to-date knowledge on the transition into kind of uh, job security. So I'm yeah. sure people will be hanging on your every word, Jenny. Oh, well, I mean, I would say that if you're a, a student who's thinking about a career in research, um, the best advice I got was not to be afraid to reach out and seek research experience. So this is actually how I first got involved in research. And I think most uh, people are happy to hear from people who are keen to uh, help out and get involved in research. Um, and I guess for those who are at the sort of latest stages or have sort of already set themselves up for a career in research, I would say that the most important thing that I have, I think, of or at least I have found, is to find mentors that are going to champion you through the potentially more difficult times. So there's certainly going to be some rejections and disappointments, but I think I've felt quite lucky to have uh, people around who've helped me pick myself up and brush myself off and try again. And I think that's sort of uh, potentially undervalued when picking the people that you work with that I think that that sort of aspect of people that are going to 
champion you at different stages of your career and particularly when things goes wrong um, is particularly important. Brilliant Jenny, thank you. That's really great advice and I completely agree, especially on the mentoring thing. Um, so thank you very much for your time and I'll just flag for anyone listening that you'll be able to find out more about Jenny Murphy's work by following the links on the podcast page which is at ed.ac.uk forward slash Salveson dash research and thank you very much Jenny. Hey thank you. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> okay we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly.